I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is brought to you by MeBank, the bank built and supported by industry super funds. Ever wondered about getting a better deal on your home loan? Well, it might be time to get in touch with MeBank. Whatever your investment strategy you'll find a loan that's right for you with competitive rates and flexible home loan options. So stop wondering and start saving. Call MeBank on 131 563 or visit mebank.com.au. Terms and conditions apply. Now here's the show. And I said, look, I want to buy these a couple of houses and knock them down and, and build some townhouses. And he said, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And I said, well, you know, the worst is we lose everything, everything, the house, all our life savings. Hey! This is Property Investry, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Chump and in this episode, we're speaking with Louise Fitzgerald Baker, author of The Pink Hard Hats. As a property developer and entrepreneur, she goes into detail about the life-changing occurrences that led her to property, the importance of removing emotion from investing and how she was able to go from property investor to property developer. Louise Fitzgerald Baker and I'm from the Pink Hard Hat and I'm a property investor, real estate agent and property developer and general entrepreneur. I've written books and uh, speak and so I've done a few things um, around and with property throughout my career so far. With a busy daily schedule, Fitzgerald Baker shares that much of her work occurs in a creative space that she deliberately integrated into her home. It's taken me uh, a while to build a life like this, but now I've built a, an office beside my house as part of one part of the house. And so once I go to work, I'm in a beautiful room which out, looks over the water and I've got a sofa beside me. And what I do on a daily basis is I do a lot of writing, coaching, speaking, um, managing properties and researching. And so some of that involves meeting with people and some of it involves being in my own space. But it's been fairly deliberately orchestrated to have this. It hasn't been the way my career's been all my life. You know, there's been times I've had a team of people, but in this chapter, this is what I have now. She adds that it's because of this unique and relaxing work environment that she's been able to mould her work around her life. It's been an opportunity to create the world I wanted to work within. So I 
I work around my life and, and and rather than, you know, live around my work and it's been really deliberate. So the space I work with, uh, the diffuser I've got on, the music that I'm listening to, the cat sleeping beside me, you know, the dog behind me, you know, you know the, I've got the wallabies jumping in front of the, you know, in the view out to the, to the landscape and so it's really deliberate. It's a space that I can be creative and I can carefully orchestrate the life I'm, I'm designing. Despite her current success, Fitzgerald Baker had to face a devastating loss at a young age. I'm the youngest of five children. I grew up in Melbourne and my life changed dramatically at the age of two. So my, uh, my father walked out the door and unfortunately never returned. He was killed in a car accident, leaving my mother widowed with five kids under 12 to look after. And for a little person, I guess you just realised one walked out and then quite shortly after it, my mother was faced with a very similar dilemma. So in her case, she had a serious choice to make. Without any insurance, she was financially destitute um, when he passed away so suddenly. He was only 40 and she was 38. And she'd never written a cheque in her life. So um, on top of having to deal with the grief, she was faced with, with a terrible choice that no one should really have to make, and that is, Mary, you have three options. You either uh, go on the pension, and frankly, who, who would blame you? You um, abort, you know, essentially stop everything. You're, you know, her husband had three menswear shops and quite uh, and a half-built house in Middle Brighton in Victoria in a really nice suburb and they sort of said, look, just stop everything, sell out and, and, um, and possibly even separate the kids to give yourself a fighting chance to be able to bring them up. And she decided 12 hours later to drive to work and take over his, you know, the family businesses, having never written a cheque in her life. And so for a little person, for all of us, our lives shifted very, very dramatically. And, you know, we got to see, I guess, a front row view of a woman faced with a circumstance none of us should ever hope, ever want to be in. But how she recovered her position and grew through that was an amazing testimony. And so that was really, I guess, my beginning. I'm the youngest of those kids uh, with three brothers and a twin sister. And part of that was her negotiation of both life and the role that money played in that. Fitzgerald Baker explains that because of this loss, much of her position and mindset in life arose from her upbringing and her mother's tenacity and hard work. I think, you know, all your memories are really just of that one key person who's pivotal. But mum would go to work at about 6.30 in the morning and then she'd be home at 6 at night. And we suddenly had a house that changed in regards to the the, the people involved in it. So where she was a stay-at-home Catholic housewife before, she now became a working mum and literally overnight. And my aunt and uncle and grandparents were involved in helping care for us. The boys about a couple of years later were sent to boarding school. And so it was just Julie and I. And so it was, it was I guess you know nothing else as you grow up and into that. Um, but as the years went on, we continue to see a working mum, a very hard-working mum, 
And she learned business the hard way in the 70s. Um, there weren't that many women in business, let alone menswear. Uh, she got ripped off left, right and centre. And so it was really a school of hard knocks. But it didn't get her down. You know, her attitude, mindset and her ability to grow through it was just profound. And I think she passed that on to all of the kids. Um, you know, it's no accident that, um, the majority of the, the children turned out to be self-made millionaires um, and very, very entrepreneurial, each of us, in very different ways. So, um, And I think that a lot of what she passed on to us is was really the idea that it's not what happens to you, it is really what you do with life. And it was through her mother's experience that she and her siblings were able to get the outlook they have in life now. My brothers all, you know, were teenage and six years older and they all went to, they finished year 12 and were required to. Then in the school holidays, we'd all have roles in the family businesses. She went from um, menswear to tax lottos and property was also something she became involved with passively as an investor. And it was just expected that, you know, as she did, we would all grow up and buy multiple properties as a means of an underpinning of security for our life. And I think she really did pass on a sense to us that, oh, my gosh, you know, money can't protect you, but it can insulate you. And I know myself that had she had a financial cushioning, then her choices would have been different in the aftermath of my father's untimely death. So I think for all of us, there was a sense that Money's not a panacea, it can't solve life's problems, but should you hit a snag, then it can cushion the fall and certainly stop that downward spiral getting any worse. And so we really took that on to see the importance that income can play in life's recovery when when things don't go to plan. On to the educational side of things. Fitzgerald Baker shares how her passion for schooling turned into an opportunity to become involved in marketing, sales and eventually property. I was good at school. School loved me and I loved it. I was one of those kids that had kind of a photographic memory and I had a really good time. You know, I was into the sports and in, I loved the whole idea of school. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and. Then I went on to uni as my twin did. So the girls in the family, we were the first really to go to university. Prior to that, it wasn't such an expectation for the generation before us really. But by the time we came along um, and we were finishing school in the late 80s, it was really expected that you go on to uni. And not knowing really what I wanted to do, I did a double major in communications and major in marketing. I kept my options open. And then I went into market research, fast-moving consumer goods and using brands and buyer behaviour to be able to orchestrate and sell products. And it was something I really loved, the psychology of, of sales through the way a product was pitched or presented to the market was fascinating because it involved business, marketing and psychology. And so I did that for several years before um, having an opportunity to work in a free trade zone, Australia's only free trade zone in the Northern Territory with a former vice chancellor of the university. He said, put your money where your mouth is, Louise. If you're any good at marketing, I'll throw you this curveball. And he threw me um, an opportunity to work in a, 
three trades on that was 22% occupied <laughs> and my job as the marketing manager was to obviously fill those places. And within about a year and a half, we got it to 98% capacity and we became, uh, you know, the, an amazing uh, testimony for uh, free trade zones both in this country and then overseas. And then I ended up doing a bit of secondment work in, in Southeast Asia, had a great time in Darwin in, in the 90s and uh, went on to work for the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, who's like one of the premiers in, in one of the other other states. And when he was presiding over a $2 billion budget and I got to do work in regards to the research side. So I've had a really colourful academic and business experience before uh, taking on the property side and falling into that space many years later. It was following her time in the Northern Territory that she began to settle down with family life and the need to generate income creatively through property. After the Northern Territory, um, I, I met my husband up in the Northern Territory and we ended up coming back to Sydney. He was working on TV news and then we moved to Canberra and then Brisbane. And when we got to Brisbane, that was where I had my children. Oh, no, when we got to Canberra, I, I had children. And uh, and then once we hit Brisbane, that's when essentially the kids started going to school. So I always worked, you know, I, I uh, while the kids were young, I worked part-time in whatever I was doing. And I reacquainted myself with the way that I would generate income. I became more imaginative in the way I would let money work for me because suddenly I had these little people that I had to fit my life around and it was no longer my choice to, you know, to leave five days a week and not see them. So I had to come up with different ways to generate money so that I could build the lifestyle we were looking to create but at the same time raise these gorgeous kids. With an avid interest in property, a strong influence from her mother and a need for financial security, Fitzgerald Baker explains that her entrance into the property world had always been somewhat planned. I had always really had an interest in property because I'd watched my mother be an investor for many years and a landlady and, and I had seen that that was really the expectation, not to just to have your own home, of course, but to have multiple income streams working for you. And in that time, property was a means to an end for an income stream. I mean, these days, and I can get onto that a bit later, but these days, there's many, many more choices out there that I didn't have back in, say, the 80s. But as soon as I was able, in in, the, in my 20s, I, I bought my first house and, you know, I bought several properties along the way and then just began to build a little portfolio quietly on the side it became harder to do once we had kids and we were down in income and obviously things became it, – it, I had to become a little more cognizant of, of income and, and, and holding these properties and some of them were positively geared but not by a much and so we had to think differently. And there was one point at which um, – my husband, who was a closet soldier, actually very, very noble, but but inconvenient. Um, he would often be called to theatres of war all over the world, and as much as that was an amazing and generous experience of him to go, it was also fraught with a lot of danger. And I remember thinking, as much you know, that it was financially rewarding for him to leave for four to six months, but 
uh, not the way I wanted to raise my family and there must be another way. And that's when I thought I think it's time that I gave this a shot. By the time I'd moved to Brisbane, I had studied, got my real estate licence and had thrown myself into property and was surrounded by property people anyway. But I'd never really stepped from investing to developing until that point when I thought, you know what, I, I want to give this a shot myself. Okay. This is really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to sort of put the puzzles together because I, actually I do have a question before we jump into it. When you said your husband's a closet soldier, I, <laughs> I've never heard that term before. Could you sort of elaborate on that first? <laughs> it's a bit of a joke. Um, he's a reservist. He's an army reservist. So that meant I married a reporter and had no idea that this little job on the side where he would occasionally go off and soldier would have been sold, you know, doing his soldiering would have been an interruption to our lives later on. So little did I know that every time there was a conflict across the world, he would get invited, not conscripted, but invited to participate and disappear and disappear. And and sometimes, you know, in, in really quite dangerous places where communication would be cut off. And so it's it's that was not a lifestyle I I imagined I'd see myself in, in places where suddenly I'm raising the kids really alone and having to think about the basics of, well, what if he doesn't come back you know, and and how does that leave me? So there was, there was that, I, I say tongue-in-cheek closet soldier, but essentially it's not like I married a soldier on an army base and had the support of a whole base and... Uh, free dental and healthcare and all of that to to cushion me. I was essentially a mum in the suburbs with a husband that would disappear for months on end in places where he he may not ultimately return. So and he was a he was a very conscientious participant in that. Just like if you are married to a fireman um, and it's Christmas. And a fire, there are fires across the country. They disappear, and and that cause is always going to be bigger than than what's going on at home. And that's what you that's what you that's what you become part of, whether you realise it or not. But I didn't really realise that the guy I married was a TV reporter. He, you know, he would come home every night. So uh, I, I guess I got. I got like, got a little surprise along the way where I thought, gosh, this is this is working out a little differently to I to how I imagined. And one of the compelling components beyond his his worldview, which is very generous and and, and very much big picture, um, and he's got a real social conscience, was the idea that of course we were remunerated well for him disappearing. So I guess there was a small part of me that went, if I could insulate us financially, then maybe he wouldn't disappear quite so much. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Louise Fitzgerald Baker's property development journey. He said, you've got, you've got my blessing, you know, and he really, you really do need your partner um, to back you on, on something like that because property is not, property um, development is not for the faint-hearted. How she grew her portfolio? I bought my first house and, you know, I bought several properties along the way and then just began to build a little portfolio quietly on the side. And that's next. I'm Tyne Sharp and you're listening to Property Investory.
This episode is brought to you by MeBank, a different kind of bank built and supported by industry super funds. You could be getting a better deal on your home loan by getting in touch with MeBank. They offer competitive rates and two loan types, one with a range of features including the ability to fix your rate and have multiple offset accounts and another that's nice and simple with no ongoing fees. Both loans provide the flexibility of interest only or principal and interest. So, whatever your investment strategy, you'll find a home loan that's right for you. Stop wondering and start saving by giving MeBank a call on 131563 or visit mebank.com.au. Terms and conditions apply. Now back to the show. Hey podcast listeners, are you interested in small investments with big profits? If the answer is yes, then register your interest at propertyinveststory.com. When you sign up, you'll receive deals at wholesale price which I've negotiated with the vendor. These deals generate positive cash returns from day one and I only send these out exclusively to my community. To find out more, visit propertyinveststory.com. Now back to the show. With the support of her husband and some property knowledge, she decided to dive straight into property development. That was really where I said to him, you know, I really want to give this this, this investing, take it to a next level and, and have a go at developing. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, look, I want to buy these the couple of houses and knock them down and, and build some townhouses. And he said, well, what's, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And I said, well, you know, the worst is we lose everything, everything, the house, all our life savings, everything. And he said, okay, let's go. <laughs> That's okay. You know, we'll lose everything. <laughs> yeah. He said, you've got, you've got my blessing, you know, and he really, you really do need your partner um, to back you on, on something like that because property is not, property um, development is not for the faint-hearted. Property investment, different kettle of fish. You can set and forget, sit on it, much like you might do shares, you know, you know blue-chip shares. You can sit on it um, and and really over the course of time, the likelihood that you're going to really lose a lot of money is unlikely. You know, you just buy steady, you do your research, you buy well, and you set and forget and then you just manage the numbers on the way through and then hopefully with the uplift and capital growth, you compensated well for t- over time. But, but property um, development is a whole different kettle of fish. You really, you know, in my experience, a third of developers make excellent, excellent income. A third for all their time, effort, sweat and tears will probably break even and a third will lose money of varying levels, they will lose. And that's they're not the ratios you hear in the world. If you look at Property Investor Magazine, it's everyone's a winner. <laughs> but, but in real life, when you're out there, you see quite differently. There, it's not a fool's game and you have to have the stomach for it. Fitzgerald Baker shares that one of the worst investing moments she's experienced stemmed from not knowing the outcome of the investment, but from the emotional roller coaster felt by her clients during the buying process. There's been, you know, times where you really have your heart in your, heart in your throat. And really, I think um, one of the stories that comes to mind, uh, we, 
probably more of a lesson than anything else. I was actually buying some property for some clients. So I was a buyer's agent for them. I'm not sure. And, and essentially um, we, had, we had scoped the market. They were looking for a house and they had instructed me to buy this particular house for $450,000 at the time. And this is probably not my worst moment, but this is, I guess, just an example of what it can be like for certain people as they get their head around property. And I guess I realised that not everyone has the stomach for it. She goes on to state that despite securing the property for her clients at a lower price, the emotional turmoil felt by the later is what made a successful investing moment the most stressful. On this particular occasion, we'd done the research. They had recently missed out on a property down the road in the suburb. And so the instruction was clear. It was Louise, go in, secure the property at 450 and do it today. And I said, Look, my, my advice is to, you know, I, I, I don't think that's in your best interests. I think you can get it for better than that. And on this particular occasion, it was going to auction and I suggested that we go and bid at the auction. So, of course, we attended the auction and I said, look, my expectation and hope is that we can get it for you between 4.20 and 4.30. And on that particular day, we went to the auction, we bid, we bid to 4.20, it got handed in and the negotiation was with us. And that strategy was fairly deliberate so that we would be the first and only people that would come to at that point to begin the negotiations post, you know, post the purchase. And on that particular day, we ended up securing that property and getting that for them at $420,000. And it was so funny because in these people were not with me, they were over the phone and I was relaying to them the strategy, which was essentially we're bidding, we're bidding to 420, we're stopping, we're stopping, we are now negotiating and we are pausing and in that time, had, I hadn't realised that one of the parties on the other end of the call was vomiting, literally <laughs> <laughs> just vomiting with grief and despair and anguish and pain. And I remember saying to him at the time, you know, when his wife was saying, you know, don't tell anyone. <laughs> really well. Um, uh, and later on, we had a giggle about it because, of course, you know, they got it 30 under what their instruction was. But but um, I just said, oh, remind me never to do property development with you guys. <laughs> they wouldn't be in a stomach. You, know, you just wouldn't have the stomach for it. So some people just don't have the stomach for or the risk or the appetite for that type of negotiation because sometimes you do have your heart in your throat. And I remember on one day, on one occasion, um, same sort of thing on a bigger scale where I was securing my own property and I was standing firm at a price and it was an excellent price and the seller ended up standing firmer and basically declined the, the sale, basically decided not to sign the contract. And it really can come down to he who blinks first because <laughs> um, it, it it was really who wants this more, and in in the case where all the all the evidence was suggesting that he should have signed this at that price with those terms, he just said no. And sometimes you can't know what the other party's doing in a negotiation. So that that there's just some funny times where you just have your moments where your heart's in your throat, 
and you can't control who's on the other end of the phone or who's on the other side of the contract and how they're going to respond to your position, your bluff or your move. It's almost like a game of poker. <laughs> yes. yes, it can be. In fact, you know, I think the song, um, you know, Kenny Rogers' song, The Gambler, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when to run, really. <laughs> it comes into the game. It comes into the game because you do need to know when to walk away and when to run. And I've had to hold them, fold them, walk away and run in, in every deal. That You have to make a call fairly decisively and say, I'm walking away at this point or I'm out and just, you know, not looking back because you can't second-guess yourself. You have to be clear enough to know your strategy, stick to your strategy and not get emotional about property. During her property development journey, Fitzgerald Baker shares the worst moment she's experienced in the series of obstacles that led to it. There's been a few over the years where you things have not um, things have not necessarily gone to plan uh, the we've had we have one project for instance where the the criteria we just had we had a series of three things go wrong and i find that you can normally take one or maybe two hits if you're good tyrone but if you get three it can be really tricky and on this one it was actually a small project it should have been straightforward it was a little four pack in in an area where it was zoned for uh, development. It was zoned for low to medium residential. And so it should have been really straightforward. But on this particular occasion, we had 50 submitters against us. <laughs> one, guy, one guy had letter drop, the letterbox dropped the plans to everyone in the locality and actually door knocked and ended up getting a you know, a series of, of, of marks against us, which was just unprecedented. And actually the law really wasn't in their favour because it's not as though we were changing the zoning. We were completely compliant in everything we were doing. But that was the first strike where we had it, – it took time just to go through a process that we hadn't scoped, envisaged or imagined or even um, – allowed for financially and even though there was no jeopardy there there was no real sense that we wouldn't get it through it was just the time and the interruption and then the second thing that happened was when the conditions came through they they were arduous so council had decided that they were going to increase the compliance on this particular block and what they did was they required a level of engineering that was disproportionate <laughs> to the size of this development. It had culverts under the ground that you might see in major engineering feats but on this particular four-pack with no particular slope, it was completely disproportionate and overscoped. And that was the second thing. And we probably hadn't seen it. We didn't have the experience. This was early on in my career. We didn't have the experience to truly understand what compliant uh, engineering compliance on that scale would have cost and looked like. And the third thing that happened, it was a time in Queensland where they decided to change the contributions. So the the taxes that you pay went from 15000 a box to 28000 a box. While that lengthy development process ended up draining her, she was able to minimise loss and gain experience on how to avoid similar issues for the future. We really had a, a 
triple whammy on that little tiny deal. And when you're doing 20 or 30 or four, different. But when you've got four, your margin of error is very small. So on that particular project, we could have sustained one hit or two, but as I said, three was really quite tricky, you know, and, and that was an occasion where we really had to manage our position to get the project done, delivered, sold and just move on. We really made very little money. It was probably $11,000 or something, but that my job really became in the end not losing money. That really became the task because the odds were against us. The market was flat. Our costs had gone up and we were releasing. We didn't have the we didn't have the favour of a running market. And really the market can be very forgiving. So in you could sustain a few hits like that if you're in parts of this country where the market was just running at the time and you had the opportunity of capital growth to be able to fall back on. But we had a static market to release to. And so the, uh, the, the deal then became making sure we and the investors involved didn't lose anything. Having said that, it was years of my life that we didn't get compensated for. So, inspired by Louise Fitzgerald Baker's journey, we'll discuss the strategy for property development. You just have to make sure that you're either playing with money that you are prepared, not wanting, but prepared to potentially lose if you're going to go into property development. The interesting personal habit that keeps it on the track to success. I do the same things every day. I think consistency is helpful in a world that can be strategic and change quickly. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. Also, are you interested in small investments with big profits? If the answer is yes, simply text me your email address to 0499881040 to register your interest. When you sign up, you'll receive deals at wholesale price which I've negotiated with the vendor. These deals generate positive cash returns from day one and only send these out exclusively to my community. To find out more, text me your email address on 0499881040. Thanks for listening. If you love the show and you're ready to get serious about saving on your home loan, give MeBank a call. MeBank is the bank built by industry super funds, famous for their competitive rates and flexible home loan options. So, whatever your investment strategy, you'll find the loan that's right for you. Call MeBank on 131563 or visit mebank.com.au. Terms and conditions apply.